Well, if you got your Bibles with you tonight, let's take a look at Isaiah together. So we look at the Old Testament, the Old Testament, the 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 guys in charge of the seminaries divide it into four or five separate parts. First we have the law, the first five books, the books of Moses. Then we have the history, then the poetry. Then we have the prophets, and the prophets are divided into two parts, major prophets and minor prophets. And the only difference between major and minor is the major prophets are the guys that wrote the most. So, yeah, they're longer. You got Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and the major prophets, and Daniel. You got those guys in the major prophets and minor prophets are typically smaller. It doesn't mean one's more important than the other. It just meant that one was larger than the other. And as we take a look at Isaiah, it's, it's kind of funny because as we look at Isaiah and as we consider what the, what the Lord has, it's funny that the critics will look at Isaiah and they just don't know what to do with it. They don't know what to do. They've come up with all kinds of theories about Isaiah. Uh, that Isaiah, The latest theory is Isaiah was written by three different Isaiahs. Because there's no way Isaiah, back when... The scripture talks about him, dated about 722 B.C., somewhere in that area. That as he writes this book, as he lays this out before us, that he can know these things. I mean, he's going to name a ruler of a, of a kingdom that doesn't even exist yet by name. Now, he couldn't possibly do that. So we need to come up with a reason, and an explanation for how that happened. So the critics will say, well, there was one Isaiah he wrote. And then there was another Isaiah years later. And then finally there was a third Isaiah around the time of, of, of Jesus. But man, you, you think the, they'd send these guys to school. That they would learn something. Because Isaiah was complete in its written form at 270 B.C. At the latest. Which it puts it substantially before the time of Christ. So the three Isaiah system won't work. The Septuagint, the first translation of any book, was the translation of the Old Testament in around 270 B.C. Uh, it's called the Septuagint because it was translated by the 70. Isaiah was there. You know the funny thing? We have this little cave called Cave Number 1 in Qumran. You heard about it? Dead Sea Scrolls. Amongst all the crazy things that they found there, and there's a lot of weird things that they found, but there was one substantial find for, for the Bible. It was a complete scroll of Isaiah. Predated anything we had by around a thousand years. That's pretty early. Isaiah was all done then. All finished. All wrote. I don't know if the second Isaiah had time to get in on it. But when they rolled out that Isaiah, when they rolled out that scroll, and they matched it with what we have today. Just what we have today. I want to say it comes out to like 98.5% accurate. So we get a little worried, right? 98.5? What do you mean? Well, there are variations in spellings of many cities and names. And in the variations that were between the two Isaiahs, it did not change one meaning of anything. It was just variations in spelling. That accounts for all the errors, all 1.5% uh, of the errors, variations in spelling. That's it. 
So you have sitting in your lap the book of Isaiah, the same book of Isaiah that, that was in existence over a thousand years ago. A thousand years before that, probably. We can go probably back prior to the time of Christ with the writings that we have. So we know we're holding the, the written word Isaiah had to bring. And the critics don't want to consider that. So they don't pay any attention to it. They just say things like, well, you know, you can't really... Isaiah was written by three people, and two of them were writing past events, not really future. And they're knuckleheads. They're knuckleheads. The scripture lays out for you and I that we can know that there only was one Isaiah. You know how we know? John chapter 12. So before we get started, flip with me over to John chapter 12. We're going to take a look at... at, uh, what John had to say is he writes the Gospel of John. Apparently John wasn't familiar with the, the critics and what they thought of things. So in John chapter 12, John is going to lay out for us a couple of quotations from the book of Isaiah. By the, by the way, 27 books in the New Testament, 20 of them quote from Isaiah. It is the most often quoted Old Testament book in the Bible. And here in chapter 12, beginning at verse 38, it says, Now that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now what's he talking about? Jesus did a bunch of miracles and they still didn't believe in him. So John says, that's what Isaiah told us was going to happen. What chapter? Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1. Then he goes on. Therefore, they could not believe because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they would see with with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. It's a quotation from Isaiah chapter 6. Now, as we look at the Greek in John chapter 12, The Greek indicates that he's talking about the exact same Isaiah. There are 66 chapters in Isaiah, and he accounts chapter 6 and chapter 53 to the exact same author. So if there's going to be three Isaiahs, you're going to have to check out the Gospel of John while you're at it. Because John says there's only one. Only one. And just as a side note, as you continue looking down John chapter 12... Verse 41, it says, These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now, in the context of this chapter, who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. Jesus did all these miracles. They didn't believe in him. Isaiah wrote that they would have blinded eyes, that they wouldn't see, they wouldn't believe his report. As he goes through that, that comes from Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, In the, king, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. By the way, that Lord is capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, the very name of God. The very name of God is attributed in John chapter 12 to Jesus Christ. So again, it, it lays out for us a, a proof of his divinity. Now as we take a look at Isaiah, Isaiah is kind of interesting because Isaiah, wouldn't you know it, breaks out into 66 chapters. Care to guess how many books of the Bible there are? 66. In Isaiah, though, 
the first 39 chapters seem to be really focused with the law and the government of God. Care to guess how many books there are in the Old Testament? 39. Funny thing, huh? The next 27 chapters focus on grace and God's salvation. Care to guess how many books there are in the New Testament? I think you're starting to get it, huh? 27. And in the book of Isaiah, it's like you can get a, a mini miniature picture of the Bible. Now, I don't want you to get too carried away with that. Because the chapter divisions, that's not that was just something that happened as the, the Bible was brought forth. But it's interesting that it worked out that way, isn't it? It's interesting that that's how it speaks. So when the, when the critics look at it, they say, well, the first 39 chapters could not have been written by the, by the last 27. They're totally different. Why? Aren't you and I different as we go through our lives? I mean, if I wrote something when I was a teenager about what I thought about parenting... And I wrote something about what I thought about parenting as a 45-year-old. You think they'd be the same? No. Because we grow. We change. Things happen to us that, that, that give us a different voice in the way that we write. And it's no different for Isaiah. And it's, it, as it is any different for you or I. So Isaiah is going to lay out for us. As we take a look at it, it's incredible because... Isaiah is going to give us the majority of the Messianic prophecies. The only other book that even is close to Isaiah is the Psalms. So Isaiah is going to lay these things out. Now, when we look at the life of Jesus Christ, as we, as we prepare to actually get into Isaiah, when we look at the life of Jesus Christ, we see Jesus Christ fulfill 300 prophecies. Now, we don't think much about that. We just say, well, he fulfilled 300 prophecies. Well, let's say you or I were to predict the weather next week. If we were to say it was going to rain, we're 50-50, right? If it, if it rains, we hit it, we, we got, we're, our chances are 50-50. What if we said it's going to rain and it's going to start at 3 in the morning? Oh, now our chances are down to 25%. What if we said it's going to start at 3 in the morning and it's going to end at, at 4 in the evening? Now it's 12.5%. Every time we add a prediction, prophetic prediction, a precise prediction, our chances are cut in half of being able to be right. Which is why the critics look at Isaiah and have a problem. But I don't have a problem with it. Because I believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of the Word of God. That it is all God-breathed. Not just the pieces I want to pick. Plenary means everything. All of it. All of it is God-breathed. God-given. It's interesting because if we look at the odds of Jesus fulfilling eight prophecies, it would be the same odds that you could pick up a red silver dollar somewhere in the state of texas but that'd be too easy first i have to cover the state of texas three foot deep with silver dollars and then i have to fly over to state of texas and somewhere throw out the red silver dollar and then you 
You have to blindfold yourself and walk across the state of Texas. And you can stop one time and only once and reach down and pick up one silver dollar. The odds that Jesus would fulfill eight are the same as the odds that you walk across the state of Texas, reach down, and pick up the one silver dollar. Do you remember how many I said he fulfilled? Three hundred. That's why the Bible says we have a more sure word of prophecy. Because God's word, one of the proofs, one of the things we can really hold on to is the prophetic word. God says in the book of Isaiah, imagine, that he will tell us the end from the beginning before it happens. Why? So you will know that I am the Lord. So that you will know. Who else could do it? In fact, if I was to pull out of my pocket, I might even have it. Nope. If I was to pull out of my pocket 10 pennies, and I took those 10 pennies and I numbered them with a magic marker, 1 through 10. You with me? Then I put them back in my pocket. And I said, watch this, hocus pocus. I predict that I will pull them out in numeric order. And I reached in and I pulled out number one, you wouldn't be too impressed. But if I pulled out number two, number three, in numeric order, I counted out all ten, you'd look at me and say, the the fix is on, brother. There's no way you could pull those all out in numeric order. That's the point. That's what God is saying with prophecy. The fix is in. God can see the end from the beginning. He knows what's going to happen. He knows what's going to take place. And he reveals it to us in his word. So as we take a look at the word, that's the value of the prophetic word. As we look and see what Isaiah has for us, we want to have that kind of an attitude. We want to see, you know, God, God's fingerprint all over it. I'm real. I love you. This is what I said was going to happen, and this is what happened. You can put your faith in me because it's not just blind, empty, there's no hope. You will see that more sure word of prophecy. And hopefully, that's what we're going to see as we continue to go through, as we we study the book. Now, as we take a look at it, there's a few things, background things, that we're going to need to understand. First off, we're around the time that the nation of Israel split. How many people get confused about the splitting of the, of the nation of Israel? Northern kingdom. I'm one of them too. Northern kingdom, southern kingdom. Okay? So we're going to hopefully help alleviate some of that. Northern kingdom is Israel. Israel was ten tribes. Ten tribes went with Israel when Jeroboam and Rehoboam, uh, uh, Solomon's son, split the country. And so you have Israel. Israel, always bad. Never good. Israel, when we study the split of the kingdoms, has something like 18 kings and never had a good one. Never followed the Lord. Never had revival. Never had none of that stuff. They just were plunging into the deep end. So when you think about the northern kingdom or when you hear the name Israel, we want to be careful of whether or not what it's being spoken of is the northern kingdom Or what's being spoken of is the entire nation. Because both are used in the scripture. We want to understand which one's being used. And so hopefully we'll be able to decipher that as we go through. The southern kingdom was Judah. 
Judah was made up of two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. Judah and Benjamin kind of were on a roller coaster. Sometimes they were doing good. Sometimes they weren't doing bad. Then they would have a revival and they'd be doing good again. And then they'd mess up and they'd be doing bad. So they kind of had this roller coaster existence. Now when Isaiah comes on the scene, Israel has already gone into captivity. They've already gone into captivity to the Assyrians. And the Assyrians were cruel, ornery, mean, nasty. Nobody wanted to be taken by the Assyrians. In fact, there were whole city-states that would commit suicide just so that they wouldn't be conquered by the Assyrians. The Assyrians are the ones that would strip you naked, put hooks in your flesh, put hooks in your nose, and drag you all the way back to Assyria. Once they got you there, they'd just do whatever they wanted to to you. Torture, a variety of different types of torture. That's what Assyria was all about. Very cruel people. And that's where Israel, the northern kingdom, went into captivity. Now the southern kingdom's going to go into captivity too. They go into captivity to Babylon. Remember our study of Daniel. That was that period of time. They go about a hundred, not quite 120 years later. Because why? Because they were good sometimes, bad sometimes. Good sometimes, bad sometimes. So they withheld God's judgment until such a time as the Lord uh, sent the nation of Babylon to take them into captivity. Babylon, however, was much kinder, right? Babylon didn't kill everyone. Babylon didn't wipe everyone out unless you made them mad. At the time that Isaiah is writing, what you need to realize is Assyria is the power. Babylon is a little tiny town that nobody cares about. That's all going to change. But not until after Isaiah lays out the word that God gave him. So as we see that prophecy, we need to understand, Babylon's not even on the scope yet. Babylon's not even on the scope yet. Now, the other thing that you need to realize is, while I say that the northern kingdom is ten tribes, does that mean that none of those ten tribes lived in Judah? What do you think? Basically, the leadership of the tribes is who we're talking about that went north and south. The reality is all 12 tribes were present in the northern kingdom and all 12 tribes are present in the southern kingdom. So there's no such thing as the 10 lost tribes of Israel. They're not lost. God knows exactly where they are. And they would have, there was not like some law that said, well, you're, you know, the tribe of Reuben, you can't go to Judah. No, that wasn't the case. They lived, they went back and forth. Sometimes there were godly, righteous people in the northern kingdom that said, man, I'm not going to be around these people are knuckleheads. So they went south. And sometimes there were pagan Jews in the southern kingdom that said, man, I'm not staying here. I'm going north where I can do whatever I want. So we want to understand those things as we take a look at what Isaiah lays out for us. It's going to be during that period of time when the, when the kingdoms were split, when they were torn apart. So we're going to go ahead and dive in tonight and begin to take a look at the book of Isaiah. He says, he gives us a timeline in Isaiah uh, chapter 1 verse 1. He says, now, the vision of Isaiah the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz 
and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So he lays out for us the period of time in which Isaiah is going to be ministering. Isaiah's ministry will span 58 years. Four and a half kings. The half king is Hezekiah's son. You heard of Hezekiah's son? We're going to see that when we get into the historical record, but Hezekiah got sick one day. Hezekiah is the one who the king of Assyria came against Judah. The king of Assyria came against Judah and told Hezekiah he's going to kill him and no God could save him. And Hezekiah went to the Lord and said, God, this is what he's saying about you. And that's when we see the angel come through and wipe out 185,000 in one day. That's that story, that Hezekiah. But that Hezekiah gets sick. He gets sick and he, he calls for the prophet and says, inquire of the Lord whether or not I'm going to get better. And the Lord said, no, Hezekiah, it's time for you to come home. And Hezekiah says, but I got so much I want to do. Nah, Hezekiah, it's time to come home. But Lord, I, I want to stay. Please, please, please. And so God said, all right. And he gave him 10 more years. In those 10 years, he fathered a son named Manasseh, who became the wickedest king that Judah ever had. And Manasseh took Isaiah, according to the Mishnah, and sawed him in half with a wooden saw. That's how Isaiah, his ministry would end at the end of the 58 years. The cool thing, as we get in a little deeper into Manasseh, we'll study him a little bit. But as we look at Manasseh, the beautiful thing is, do you know that nobody's beyond redemption? Manasseh was a bad guy. And he caused a lot of grief. But while he was in captivity, he cried out to the Lord. And the Lord heard his prayer and made him king again. And he knew that the Lord was God. So we're going to see Manasseh come full circle. The funny thing is, Hezekiah would have listened to the Lord. We could have bypassed all that pain and anguish. Okay, so he's given us the dates. Here's the dates, 58-year ministry. Isaiah is going to get busy. Now, it says in verse 2, Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children. The Lord's going to talk about his people, and he calls them his children, his kids. Hey, I nourished them. I brought them around. Who, who gave the nation of Israel birth? Where did they come from? They came from the Lord. There's no other place that they could come from. You see, God called the Gentile. Remember, his name was Abraham. Abram at the time that God called him. And God, as God called him, God worked in him, through him, brought up a nation. They went in a family to Egypt. They came out a nation. God gave them birth, and so they're his kids. So he says, listen, I have, I have kids. Those of us who have children, we can relate. And they have rebelled against me. Now, those of us who have children really can relate. They have rebelled against me. Now, the ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know my people do not consider. God says, you know, even the dumb animals know who their master is. But my people don't know that I'm their master. 
Well, there was a variety of times when, when they would. As I said, their, their walk with the Lord would be a bit of a roller coaster. But in essence, it's, it's quite the critique against, against them, against me. As I look at, at God's Word, God's Word speaking to me, I want to make sure that I'm not as dumb as the ox or the donkey. You know, I've had some dogs that didn't know. I don't have them anymore. They have gone, how is it we say that? The way of the buffalo. Yes. They have gone the way of the buffalo. And many will follow them if I have more dogs that don't know who the master is. So, here's what the Lord is laying out. God's people don't know him. Alas, a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. And they have turned away backward. They have backslidden is what he's laying out. He's talking about their backsliding. Now Isaiah is going to use this particular title for God more than any other. The Holy One of Israel. Which, by the way, is a title that is going to consistently refer to the Messiah. The Mashiach, Jesus Christ. The Holy One of Israel. So he says, my people are backslidden. They're corrupt. They're, they're laden with iniquity. They're not just walking in sin. They're just covered in it. Bathed in it. Up to their ears. They're just soaking in sin. Why should you be stricken again? You will just revolt more and more. Have you ever come to a place where your kids, where you're, you're bringing discipline, but it seems like the more discipline you bring, the more further away they go? This is how God felt with his people. This is what he's saying. He's saying, listen, why should I beat you anymore? You just revolt more. You just run away more. You're just going to go uh, in the opposite direction of what I want to do. Look what he says. Your whole head is sick and the whole heart faints. From the sole of your foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it. And then he goes on to say, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores... They have not been closed or bound up or sued with ointment. This is what had happened to Judah. They'd been defeated by just about everybody during the reign of King Ahaz, one of the kings that Isaiah was prophesying during. King Ahaz lost battles to Israel, Syria, Edom, the Philistines, and Assyria. And the Lord says, even though all these things have come upon you, even though all this stuff is happening, you still don't look toward me. You're still not reaching out for me. You're, 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 you act like I don't exist. You act like I'm not even here. Folks, God learned long ago in our behavior, maybe God always knew, well, I know God always knew, but that we learn best in the furnace of affliction. Now, maybe we don't like that. But the Lord allows the furnace of affliction to, to light up in our life to do two things. One, purify us. Two, get us to reach our hands up to Him. But the Lord's saying to Judah, you're not, listen, you're not lifting your hands to me. You're not coming to me. You're, you're, it doesn't matter what happens. You're running as hard as you can in the opposite direction. And so the Lord is calling for them. He's calling for their repentance. He's calling for them to change. He says in verse 7, Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Strangers devour your land and your presence. And it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. 
The land was all torn up. If you want to see this take place, 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 28. If we look in 2 Chronicles 28, 19, it's going to give us uh, what was going on with King Ahaz. You don't have to go with me. I'll go for you. 28, 19. It says, For the Lord brought Judah low because of Ahaz, king of Israel. For he had encouraged moral decline in Judah and had been continually unfaithful to the Lord. Also Tiglath-Pileazar, king of Assyria, came to him and distressed him and did not assist him. For Ahaz took part of the treasures from the house of the Lord, from the house of the king, from the leaders, and he gave it to the king of Assyria, but he did not help him. Now in the time of his distress, King Ahaz became increasingly unfaithful to the Lord. This is that King Ahaz. So this is what Isaiah is talking about. As he lays out this prophecy, he's dealing with issues with King Ahaz and what has, been, uh, what has taken place in Judah. And he's trying to, to encourage Judah to turn away. So, verse 8, So daughter of Zion, so the daughter of Zion is left as a booth in the vineyard. The daughter of Zion, the city of Zion, he's talking about the city of Jerusalem, as a booth of a vineyard and as a hut in a garden of cucumbers. As a, yeah, it's funny, huh? They must know about the cucumber thing in Idaho. Rolling up your windows. They didn't roll up the windows in Jerusalem. Now they're in the garden of cucumbers. Is the same difference in it? <laughs> okay, so anyways, I digress. As a besieged city, unless the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom, we would have been made like Gomorrah. One of the important things for us to always see going through biblical prophecy and the struggles of God's people is that the Lord always had a remnant. You may remember in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 3, verse 1, we're introduced to one of the seven letters to the seven churches. The, the church of Sardis. The church of Sardis. The word Sardis, by the way, means remnant. Here was a message to the church of Sardis. These things says, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works, that you have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. The Lord, as he lays out this message, this word to the church called Remnant, or the church of Sardis, His message is, to me, eerily familiar to the message that he's given to Judah. Judah is the remnant. Israel has been almost utterly destroyed. Judah and what's left of the the 12 tribes of Israel, that's the remnant. And God's like, hey, you guys are heading in the wrong direction. You're going in the wrong way. You are headed to destruction. And they said, they, Judah, they say, man, if the Lord hadn't, saved us as a remnant, we'd have gone the way of Sodom and Gomorrah. So look what God says. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude 
of your sacrifices to me. He says, hey, what are you guys doing? He calls them Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, you and I, as we, when we look at sections like this in the scripture, we need to have a very clear understanding of what caused Sodom and Gomorrah to be destroyed. Now, most often, people will say the sin of homosexuality. That is not true. That is part of the sickness of Sodom and Gomorrah. But it was not the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. If you hold your finger here and turn to your right, you're going to come to a book called Ezekiel. If you'll flip in Ezekiel to chapter 16, in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49, God, through the prophet Ezekiel, tells us the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, tells us what the issue was with them. In verse 49, it says, Look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter, Sodom and Gomorrah, she and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, the abundance of idleness, neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy, and they were haughty and committed abomination before me, therefore I took them away as I saw fit. Do you catch the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? It's not homosexuality. Homosexuality was part of the sickness that they had. It's what sin was doing within their borders. But it started with what? Pride, fullness of food, abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. Well, if I had to pick four things that are wrong with our country today, I'd be hard-pressed to find a better list than that list. The sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what led to their destruction. The Lord said it. That's what led to their destruction. It's why God took them out of the way. So when we look at that and we recognize that when the Lord is calling someone Sodom and Gomorrah, he's talking about, listen, your your fullness of pride, your fullness of food, your fullness of idleness. You don't care about other people. You're selfish. You're only thinking about yourself. And that's the declaration that he's making to Judah. You are acting like Sodom. You're acting like Gomorrah. You're acting like those people. You're not being others focused. You're not focusing on what the Lord has for you. So look in verse 11, he says, so why are you bringing me sacrifices? Why do you offer sacrifices? Listen, Isaiah is going to attack religious formalism. Now, this is, this whole section, God's really going to focus in on what I consider to be religion. Religion is just that thing we do. You know, I go to church on Sunday morning, I go on Christmas Eve, I go on Easter, even if it's bad weather, you know, you can count on me, I'm going to go on those times. It's this tradition, what do I do? Why do we do it that way? You know, I'm going to do it like this and like that, but it's all just tradition, it's nothing about the heart. And that's what Isaiah is focused in on. The nation of Judah is still offering the sacrifices. They're still doing all the things God said to do. Meanwhile, their kings are causing their own children to walk through the fire. That means that the kings of Judah were sending their kids to the fires of Baal, to the fires in the valley of Hinnom, or Gehenna, and burning their children alive so that the gods, Belial or, or Baal, would bless them and give them better crops. 
And then they'd go to church on Sunday. Actually, Saturday. And they'd offer their sacrifices. They'd do their things. They're just going through the motion. It's just religion. And everybody, folks, I don't care who they are, everybody distastes, dislikes religion. We want to have a relationship. And maybe that's thrown around a lot, but that's a bottom line. It needs to be real. I don't just do this because I'm going through the motions. I do this because it's real. It's living. If it's not real and living, why are we wasting our time? There are other things to be doing. But because this is the truth. So what does Satan do? He takes the truth and he makes it just a tradition. Now you just go through the motions. We just go through. We're just coasting. So the Lord says, what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifice, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. uh, For I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. What's the Lord saying? What was the purpose of it all then? The purpose of it all was a picture. It was an illustration of Jesus Christ. And if it was something that was real in their hearts, then the Lord covered their sin. But if it's just some flippant deal, it's worthless. Same as if someone comes forward at church and prays a sinner's prayer and all it is is words. It's a waste of time. It's not real. There's no hocus pocus. I said the magic words and now I'm saved. No, it takes place in the heart, not from the mouth. From the mouth, confession is made. But in the heart, belief takes place to salvation. And that's what the scripture declares. And that's what's going wrong with Judah. They're just going through the motions, man. They're just, they're just doing the thing. Hey, we're offering the sacrifices. Woohoo! You know, we're burning up, having all these barbecues. And God basically says he's full and he don't want to have none of it anymore. He don't, he don't want to receive what they have to offer. He says, when you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Bring no more useless sacrifices just going through the motion. Save yourself the hassle. The Lord says, I don't want it. I don't want it. Don't bring those wasted sacrifices. And your incense is an abomination to me. You remember as we study on Wednesday night, incense. What's the the altar of incense? A picture of incense. Throughout the scriptures, a picture of prayer. Stop bringing your prayers. Over and over again, God's going to tell his people, stop praying. I'm not listening to you anymore. You need to get on track. Because your prayers are a waste of time. Folks, there's a lot of people in the world whose prayers are a waste of time. Why? Because they don't live holy enough? No. Because it's not in their heart. I know a lot of people that pray all the time, praying for this, pray for that, but they don't, they don't hold the Lord Jesus Christ in their heart. They're not focused on being committed to God or obeying his word. They're just, it's just a thing. You know, I'm in the United States. Aren't we supposed to pray? So we'll pray. The Lord says, your incense is an abomination to me. Then he says, the new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of the assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Listen, God says, if you're willfully sinning, if you're willfully sinning, you're walking in iniquity, you know this is wrong, but you refuse to repent, do not 
come to Passover. Don't worry about keeping the feasts. Don't worry about keeping the Sabbath. You got bigger problems. Because what's going on in your life is not real. And it needs to be real. That's why over and over again, doesn't the Bible say, do not deceive yourselves, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, what? That will he reap. And so the Lord lays out for us here in the same section. Listen, I cannot endure iniquity in the sacred meeting. That's why the Lord said, listen, if you come before me to the communion table, and as you come to that place, you remember you have a problem with a brother, but you want to come and bring an offering to the Lord, what did the Lord say? Set your offering down and go make it right with your brother. And then come back. And so the Lord is laying out here. Listen, if you've got sin, iniquity, regarding iniquity. Folks, if we know there is iniquity in us, we ought to be repenting of that when we come to gather together. That's the purpose of coming together. 1 John 1.9 tells us what to do, right? Confess our sins. That means we name them. It doesn't mean, Lord, forgive me for my sins. I'm not putting much time into that. Right? I bet if I sat down and thought about it, I could think of several that I could name. So when he says, confess your sins, he wants us to name it. He wants us to turn away. He wants us to agree with him. It doesn't mean I'm perfect. I will probably pray the same prayer the next day, struggling with the next, the same sins. But my heart is turned toward him, not just my lips. That's what God requires. That's what he wants. Hey. He goes on now and says in verse 14, Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. That's pretty strong language coming from God. I don't ever want to be found in a category where the beginning of that category is things that God hates. I don't want to be there. I want to be in a place where I'm obeying what God... I I want to be in the side that God loves, not what God hates. This is what God hates. He hates... This religiosity, this fake relationship. If Jesus had harsh words for anyone, who did he have it for? The religious. The religious. Not for the sinner. Seldom did he have harsh words for the sinner. Often he had harsh words for those who were religious, self-righteous. Same thing here as we go through the book of Isaiah. We see the same thing. Now look. Uh, They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, listen, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. They come and they pray. And the two days earlier, they were sacrificing their children. That's why when Jesus walks through Jerusalem and he sees the Valley of Hinnom, he calls that place Gehenna, and he uses that for a title of what hell is like. Because that's where they did those things. And to God, that's what hell is is all about. So he's saying, hey, your hands are full of blood. Your hands are, are full. Don't come to me like that. Look what he said in verse 16. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, 
Put away the evil of your doing from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Listen. Defend the fatherless and plead for the widow. Hey, the number one focus, as far as I see, of the church is to fulfill that call. That the church would defend the fatherless and to assist the widow. James would say, pure and undefiled religion is this. These are the things that we ought to be looking for opportunity uh, to be a part of. Helping, doing things within our community, doing things uh, to establish these, these, uh, these, these re- as a reality within our body. So we want to do those things. But do these things make us clean? Is that what he's saying? No, the the stuff we do doesn't make us clean. What makes us clean? The attitude of our heart. The attitude. My people draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. God wants the heart, not the lips. He wants it to be a reality. So what's the test of reality? Well, he just told us. Remember I told you this morning, the law of love, love will always do more than the law requires. When you love someone, do I have to tell you, do you have to concentrate on being nice to them? When you love someone, do you have to really think about trying to do what's right by them? Those of us who have children, nobody ever had to tell me that the law said I had to feed my kids. Somehow I knew that. Because I love them. So I'm going to care for him. So when we love, the attitude of love, what's that going to produce within us? Well, we're not going to, we're going to abhor evil and cling to what is good. Isn't that what it says in the New Testament? Abhor evil, cling to what is good. We're, to, we're told to meditate on things that are pure and lovely and of good reproach. Our attitude is an attitude of turning away from sin. So when my relationship is real, when it's real, when it's not words, I am willing. I might not perform better than someone else, but I am willing to turn my back on the garbage and put my face toward the Lord. And that's what he's saying. Turn your back on these things and begin to move forward. Look at verse 18. Come now, we should be familiar with this. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. For though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good of the land. What's he saying? It's your choice. It's our choice. God won't make it happen. We choose that. The the nation of Judah could choose. They could choose to do what's right. They could choose to do what's wrong. The freedom of choice was in their hand. If they chose life, then they would receive life. Remember, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, what? He will reap. If I sow to the flesh, I will of the flesh reap corruption. If I sow to the Spirit, I will of the Spirit reap eternal life. That's the same thing he's laying out here. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. But what? You have to choose. He's telling the nation of Judah, just because you're born in Israel, just because you're a Jew, doesn't mean you're saved. Not all who call themselves Israel are of Israel. Paul wrote in Romans 9, 10, and 11. 
any more than not everyone who says they're a Christian is a Christian. It is the heart. The Lord says, my people would be far better with the circumcision of the heart rather than the circumcision of the flesh. But they were all focused in how they were born and not who they were trusting. That became a, a source of contention within. Verse 20, but if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. God lays boundaries. Do you know that God lays boundaries? And he's not mad. God lays boundaries. And he says, here's the boundaries. If you go outside of that, this is what's going to happen to you. Now, how many times have you and I gone outside of that boundary and, and felt the hammer of God only to say, Lord, what are you doing? What do you mean, Lord, what are you doing? God said, if you do this, that's going to happen. That's what he's saying to the people. Hey, these are the boundaries. You can choose life. Choose it. But if you don't choose it, this is what's going to happen. This is where you're going to go. This is what's going to take place. Verse 21, how the faithful city has become a harlot. It was full of justice, righteousness lodged in it, but now murderers. At one time, remember I told you, Judah, doing great, doing bad. Doing great, not very much different from us, is it? The ups and downs that we have in our Christian walk. So, verse 22, your silver has become dross, your wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bride and follows after rewards. And listen to this, for they do not defend the fatherless, nor does the cause of the widow come before them. Well, that was something that the Lord had against his own people. And it's something that carries throughout the scripture. God says he's the defender of the fatherless and of the widow. And he wants us to take up that banner. Therefore, the Lord says, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, I will rid myself of my adversaries and take vengeance on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you and thoroughly purge away your dross. Hey, Circle that. Thoroughly purge. He didn't say, I will obliterate you from existence. He said, I will purge your dross. What's that mean? I'm going to turn up the flame and I am going to refine you. I'm going to get rid of the dross. I'm going to get rid of the garbage. But what's going to be left is pure. That's what God says he's going to do. He doesn't say, you know what, Israel, I'm so tired of talking to you. Judah, I'm so tired of reaching out. Forget it. I'm starting over. He doesn't say that. He offered that to Moses one time. and It was probably, the, the, to me, the peak of human existence, the answer that we gave God on that day. When God said, I don't care about you. You, Just go do whatever you want. I'm not going to go with you anymore. And the people said, then we won't take a step unless you go with us. So, in Romans 9, 10, 11, God says he's not done with the nation of Israel. He'll never give up on them. Why is that important to us? Because, folks, if God gives up on Israel, he can give up on you. If God doesn't give up on Israel... He won't give up on us. He fulfills his promise. The promise that God made to Abraham was not 
placed on Abraham. God said, I will. Unconditional. I will fulfill my promise. If he breaks that promise, then what stops him from breaking the promise of the new covenant? Nothing. But because he keeps that, we know he keeps the promise of the new covenant. As we continue through, he says now, I will purge away your dross, and I will take away all your aloe. I will restore your judges as at the first, and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed with justice, and her penitence with righteousness. The destruction of transgressors and of sinners shall be together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. There is a time of judgment, ultimate judgment, that will take place. And they shall be ashamed of the terebinth trees. Now that's a little weird, isn't it? How many times have we go through the Old Testament, especially during the times of the kings, and we study about a good king tearing down the groves? They would tear down the groves. What was the groves? The groves were trees, sometimes terebinth, sometimes oak, that were planted, that were then carved into phallic symbols, and that were then a part of worship. They would go into the groves to worship false gods and to participate in sexual immorality, which is why they were worshiping the false gods in the first place, because that's what they were able to do. So the Lord says, you're going to be ashamed of those trees. You have them planted various times. They were planted all around Israel, all around Jerusalem. These trees which you have desired, and you are embarrassed because of the gardens which you have chosen. For you shall be like the terebinth whose leaf fades, and as a garden that has no water. The strong shall be as tender, and the work of it as a spark. Both will burn together, and no one will quench them. Listen, as the Lord lays this out, as he He gets us started in the book of Isaiah. He lays out for us this judgment on the self-righteous religious. Those that are going through the motion. Those who on one hand come to offer sacrifice. On the other hand, they're sacrificing their children. Their hands are covered with blood. Or on the other hand, they're participating in sexual immorality in the gardens outside the city. Or, on the other hand, they're wrapped up in some other devious sin. And they just pretend like that doesn't matter. And they're faking what they have before the Lord. But you know, God sees everything. He sees in the dark. He knows what we're about and what we're doing. And God wants, rather than the outward appearance of holiness... He wants the inward penitent sinner who stood in the temple and beat his breast and said, Have mercy on me, a sinner. You remember? The Pharisee said, Oh, thank you, Lord, that I'm not a woman, that I'm not a dog, and I'm not a Gentile, or I'm not a sinner like that guy. But that sinner just beat his breast and said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, Which one went away Forgiven, justified, made just as if he'd never done it. The sinner. Why? Because it was a heart, not about performance. It's about heart. We've got to get out of that mindset that it's about my performance and realize it's all about heart. Where's my heart at? Which is much more difficult, right? Sin is a sin. Where does it begin? It begins in the heart. The Ten Commandments are broken in the heart. So as a... As Isaiah lays this out for King Ahaz and for uh, Jerusalem and Judea 
and Judah in particular, as he lays this out for them, they're faced with an opportunity. They didn't turn. And they will go into captivity to Babylon, but eventually God will purify. He will always have a remnant. And we want God to do that work in our midst. We want God to do that work in our lives. Burn away the dross. Make us pure by the refiner's fire. And not to be afraid of that work that God does. Amen? Amen. I want you to stand with me and let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time where we can come before you. Father, we thank you for an opportunity to study the book of Isaiah, God. And I pray, Father, that we would just begin to hunger for the truth of what your word declares and, and how your word declares it. God, I pray that we would just desire to take this. That This is not just some chapter written to some people that has no application to me. This chapter describes me. It describes my ability to be caught up in religiosity and not in the reality of a relationship with you. So, Father, as we set aside some time to worship, I just pray, God, that your spirit would move in our lives and in our hearts, that we would be just seeking, Father, asking the questions like the psalmist. Lord, look at me. Purify me. If there is any wicked way within me, cleanse it. Father, help us to walk the way that you're calling us to walk, but not focused on performance, Father, but focused on our heart. May our heart be toward you. And I can't fake that. Lord, we ask that you would be glorified and magnified in this place as we seek your blessing now, as we seek the move of your spirit in this place through worship we ask, uh, Father, your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to continue to worship. We invite you to hang out if you're able. Uh, if, not, uh, if you'd like to have prayer, Kathy's in the back. And if you have questions specifically about baptism of the Holy Spirit, she'd be happy to, to talk with you about those things. God bless you. Go in peace.